Well, welcome back to Wednesday night study. And as uh, I finished up last week saying we would actually uh, bring up the fossil record uh, tonight, we will do that. And then um, I'd like to begin uh, a rather lengthy um, unit on uh, the argument for morality. So we should be able to begin that one tonight. And if you're like, well, what do the fossil record and the argument for morality have in common? Why would you combine those two? Because as you know, uh, right before Noah's flood, uh, the Bible says that all their thoughts were only evil continuously, right? So there's a lack of morality, and those people became fossils. So it goes hand in hand, morality and fossils, right? Okay, I thought I was going to give you 30 seconds to stop laughing, but apparently you got that under control much quicker. So we'll go ahead and pray and begin. <laughs> Our Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord. We thank you that you've, uh, you've called us your children, Lord, and um, you're discipling us and you're raising us up to follow you and follow you well. And you've left us your word, Lord, as our guiding light. And we want to follow that better and better. So, Lord, as we take a look at your creation, see what it says to us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless this effort tonight and that you be tangibly present with your people, uh, Lord, to whisper in our ears and, and pat us on our backs when we're getting it and when we're going the way that you've called us to go. So we thank you for being here. We love you. We serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Now, as far as uh, an opening Devo that I was thinking of to start this off tonight, I want you to hear this from Luke 19. In Luke 19, we see this. <clears throat> Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, the triumphal entry, and they're throwing palm fronds and on the ground creating a carpet of palm leaves for him to come in. They're recognizing his fulfillment of scripture. They're recognizing their Messiah has come. Um, just like when the Samaritan woman had said, I know when Messiah comes, he'll teach us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. And now we get this full revelation that their Messiah has come after many, many generations of waiting and anticipation, trying to figure out the time when the prophets were telling them that this Messiah would come. And now it's here, and now he's making no bones about it. He, he gets the donkey to fulfill prophecy. He rides in as their king. And it says in uh, Luke 19, uh, I'll pick it up in verse 38. They were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you the truth, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So there's no hushing praise for God, right? There's no silencing it. If it got silenced, Jesus said the stones would even cry out. Now, how are we to understand that? Well, one way of understanding it, if we go to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks on this a bit. And I'm sorry, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this. He says, since you have purified your souls 
and obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So we see we as mankind, we wither and we fall away, but the word of God is never going to wither. It's never going to fall away. It's going to stand forever. And then he says that because of that, in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him... <coughs> As to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what did Peter just say there? We're being built up as what? That will cry out, right? We're the crying out ones, okay? So even if you end up killing that Messiah, his living stones will cry out, correct? And that's you and I, okay? Now, we're going to talk about other stones that are crying out tonight that were called fossils. And they're speaking to us from, from, from the grave. Now, what is a fossil? Well, a fossil is, is a creature that experienced an unusual occurrence. Most things that die don't become fossils. But something that dies catastrophically and is instantaneously buried with sediment becomes a fossil. So we need an event, a dramatic event, to create fossils, and we have millions of fossils all over the world. So we have these creatures that experience some catastrophic event and there's great evidence that many of these deaths were instantaneous because we actually have fossils of fish eating another fish and they're in the middle of a meal when suddenly they're killed and buried. Uh, we have, um, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, the the seahorses. Oh, seahorses. I'll say, what are those seahorses called? But they're called seahorses. Yeah. We have uh, fossils of seahorses in halfway given birth. And they're instantly killed and buried. Okay, so we have lots of, of fossils that show this instantaneous death and burial, which would make for a fossil. So it's pointing to a flood event. So all this controversy over a flood event, which I'm not going to talk about geological columns and things like this, which are great, great evidence for a flood. But we're going to talk about the fossils tonight. So... These fossils that we're talking about are creatures that were instantly killed and buried at the same time. So let's take a look at the fossil record here. All right. I'm going to let the two kingpins of the evolutionary movement speak for us. Obviously, Charles Darwin, huge kingpin of the evolutionary movement, and Stephen Jay Gould, who's a paleontologist, 
He's uh, one of the most well-known paleontologists uh, of, our of our time. Let them do the speaking about this. We see Charles Darwin said that, we go to the next slide. Charles Darwin said, he said, well, recognizing that the fossil record did not show gradualism. Gradualism is that word for slow, gradual change over millions of years. Recognizing that the fossil record did not show gradualism. Darwin wrote, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediary links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this, perhaps, is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. So, observing the fossil record, Charles Darwin says, I don't understand why we don't see any evidence of slow gradual change in the fossils. Okay. So Stephen Jay Gould, more recent and more particular to fossils, has something to say about this as well. So if macroevolution were true, we would have found thousands if not millions of transitional fossils by now. Instead, Gould observes, the history of most fossil species includes two features that are particularly inconsistent with gradualism. Now, these two features that are particularly inconsistent with gradualism are what I call defeaters. They're defeaters of this idea of slow gradual change over millions of years. Here's the first one, sudden appearance. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. Instead, it appears all at once and fully formed. So when they, when they look at, when they find the oldest of fossils, they're all dating to the same period of time. There's no evidence of it being like the um, tree of life, the slow gradual change where simple forms are the oldest forms. And as they evolve, they get a little more complex, a little more complex, a little more complex. We don't see that in the fossil record. What we see is they all date as coming to existence at the same time. So it's been said, instead of a tree of life, it looks more like a lawn or a garden. You know how in a lawn or a garden, things come up all up, up at once at the same time together, which is exactly our creation story, correct? All life came in at the same time. That's what the fossil record is, is telling us from the mouth of Stephen Jay Gould. Stephen Jay Gould is not a Christian. He's not a creationist. He's very much an evolutionist. Yet he's saying the fossil record shows sudden appearance. Everything came at the same time. The second thing that the fossil record is showing is what we call stasis. And stasis means that when you look at these oldest fossils in the fossil record, and then you look at the time that those creatures became extinct, there is no change in that fossil record in their entire existence. There's no movement towards evolutionary advancement whatsoever in the fossils. So you can see that second paragraph there. Stasis says, most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking much the same way as when they disappear from the fossil record. Morph morphological change is usually limited and directionless. And this gets into last week's talk of molecular gaps and genetic limits, right? They're just not able to expand over those gaps molecularly. And the fossil record shows that from the very beginning when the fossil first comes into I'm sorry, when the creature first comes into the fossil record, to their extinction. 
You see very little movement um, towards macroevolution. So gold is emitting that fossil types appear suddenly, fully formed, and remain the same until extinction without any directional change, exactly what one would expect to find if creation were true. But instead of admitting defeat, Gould proposed a theory of which we have not a single bit of evidence. It's called punctuated equilibria, which we just um, abbreviate PE, punctuated equilibria. PE suggests that species evolved much faster over a shorter period of time, thereby explaining these huge fossil gaps, the fact that there is no slow gradual change in the fossil record. So he said, well, maybe it happened over a shorter time really, really fast. That's exactly the opposite of what the biological argument says is necessary to explain how very complex changes happen. They need millions and millions of years. It's got to take a super long time because there's no way these genetic changes could happen rapidly because they're much too complicated. Well, now when you look at the fossils, you go, well, the fossils say this happened to happen really, really quick because we don't see any change in the fossils. Okay, so they're kind of, they're, they're shooting each other in the foot between the biologist and the paleontologist. Paleontologist needs evolution to go really, really fast or the fossil record does not support it. Bi uh, the biologist needs evolution to go really, really slow or our DNA and all of that does not support, um, uh, the complexity of our DNA does not allow for change unless it's millions and millions and millions of years. So we have a problem here. Now, Stephen Jay Gould was never ever able to explain the, bi the mechanism by which such rapid evolution could take place. So he suggests rapid evolution, yet when asked, uh, what's the biological mechanism that would allow such a fast change over time? He failed to come up with anything uh, that would account for that. All right. It's not that there's a missing link. We always hear about missing link, missing link. It's that the whole chain is missing. There is no chain of gradualism in the fossil record. Nearly all the major groups of animals known to exist appear in the fossil record abruptly formed in the strata from the Cambrian period. So because they all date to the Cambrian period, nothing before that, it's been called the Cambrian explosion, or some people have called it biology's big bang, that everything just, boom, came into existence at once. So the fossil evidence is completely inconsistent with Darwinian evolution, and yet fits harmoniously with instantaneous creation. So people will say, well, what about all the skulls that we find? The skulls have often been presented side by side by side by side by side, showing it going from very chimp-like to very human-like over time. Now, many of those missing links have been proven frauds or simple mistakes. Uh, there's a lot of fraudulent activity that happens in the paleontological, paleontological world. Uh, Michael Denton, he points out that 99% of the biology of a creature or of an organism resides in its soft anatomy, not in its bone structure. So when we look at a fossil, we're only looking at 1% of the information of that creature. 99% of what can be known of that organism is, is in a soft anatomy. So Jonathan Wells said, <laughs> the, fossil evidence, the fossil evidence is open to many interpretations, 
because individual specimens can be reconstructed in a variety of ways and because the fossil record cannot establish ancestor-descendant relationships. You cannot look at fossils and say, this is the ancestor of this and this is the ancestor of this. You are going on blind data. You only have 1% of the information of that creature when you take fossils and try to identify a lineage of that fossil. All right. All right, so apes to humans. Apes to humans. Oh, wait, I'm, yeah, apes to humans. All right. Again, photo credits go to John there. Okay. All right, so what about the similarity between apes and humans, really chimps and humans? But that similarity is absolutely expected when you have creatures that are living in the same biosphere. We're going to both breathe oxygen, correct? So respiratory systems have to be alike. We're going to walk across the ground as terrestrial animals. We're going to need to have leg structures as, as, as uh, either four-footed or, or bipeds. We're going to need uh, DNA similarities to create the legs to, to go through the, the ground. Uh, we're both going to eat fruits and things like that. We're going to have to have DNA to create teeth to get through that. So when you have all these similarities going um, that re are required of creatures sharing the same biosphere, you would expect these similarities. What's not expected by the evolutionist is the vast differences we have between humans and bears and apes and snakes and fungi and trees and hippos and peacocks, octopi, porcupines, venus flytraps, mildew, all of it supposedly coming from the same first irreducibly complex life without any intelligent intervention. So how do we go from that first self-replicating organism to the vast variety of stuff that we have. Millions and millions of varieties of creatures out there, both airborne and, and underwater and land-dwelling, um, creatures that could be underwater their entire life, that could be both air and water, and uh, creatures that fly. How do you get all this variety from a single-celled organism? Okay, so that can't be explained. Uh, by Darwinian evolution, but certainly similarities can be explained. It much more so points towards a common creator rather than a common ancestor. Okay, it's much more pointing to a common creator than a common ancestor. So Henry G., who's a science writer for Nature magazine, he said about this, he said, to take a line of fossils that claim that they represent a lineage is not a scientific hypothesis that can be tested. But and it's, it's an assertion that carries the same validity as a bedtime story. It's amusing, perhaps even instructive, but it's not scientific. You just can't get that type of information out of fossils. All right. So that leaves us with two possibilities. Either God created us or we created God. So let's take a look at these two possibilities. What are the implications of this idea that we came up with God? God is an invention of our minds. Well, if somebody believes that God is a creation of our own imagination, they must also believe that something came out of nothing. 
All right, we covered that in the cosmological argument. They have to believe that everything that exists came out of absolute nothingness, even though we've shown that spontaneous generation is absolutely impossible. Yet everything that exists is required to have, have come from spontaneous generation. Um, we'd also have to believe that order can come out of chaos. The Big Bang explosion obviously is the epitome of chaos, yet the epitome of order resulted from that chaotic explosion. All the laws of physics formed, all these mathematical equations that teach us how the universe works have to fit perfectly <coughs> in order for this universe to be here. And yet it came out of a chaotic explosion is what we would have to believe. Um, I think early on in the class I shared with you a quote that when, I can't remember who it was now, it might have been Peter Singer that we're going to hear from in a minute, but when asked how he explained all the order of the universe from that chaotic Big Bang explosion, he said, uh, I suppose there was a time before time when um, a, 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 a cloud of, uh, a dusty cloud of mathematical points arranged themselves over and over and over again until it came up with the space-time universe. And I think I went through all the problems with that problem. You can't have a time before time. You can't. When, when saying how can something come out of nothing, his answer is mathematics did it. And mathematics is highly ordered, as you know. Two plus two has never had any other answer but four, correct? So it's highly, highly ordered. So you're going to say out of absolute nothingness, that nothingness exploded, and in that chaos, complete order of perfect math and physics and metaphysics formed our, our universe. And then we went through the teleological argument to show the tremendous odds against just gravity being perfect like it is. Uh, the speed rotation of, of the Earth, um, our distance from the sun, the moon's gravity, all that's got to be at a precision, the expansion rate of the universe, at a precision that doesn't allow for any flexibility or there's no life. All these constants with impossible odds against them all coming true. You'd also have to believe life came out of non-life. We've never seen that. We believe in biogenesis, right? Life has to come from life. Well, you have to believe life came from non-life. Intelligence came from non-intelligence. We've never observed that. Personality came from non-personality. Personhood came from non-personhood. Okay, all these things that are non-observable, all of them would have had to happen. So what are the implications for the we, believed, we, we created God belief? Well, we believe new life forms come from pre-existing life forms. Okay? Well, you'd have to believe, wait, I'm sorry. We believe new life forms came from pre-existing life forms, but you'd have to believe against that despite all the scientific evidence, like molecular isolation. I know we covered this last week. I hope you're like experts on it now, right? Been talking about it all week, right? Sharing it at the water cooler. Molecular isolation, cyclical change, irreducible complexity, the non-viability of the transitional forms, genetic limits, and the fossil record. So you'd have to believe all those impossible things. Life came from non-life. Um, everything came out of nothing. Uh, intelligence came from non-intelligence. You'd have to believe all those things despite molecular isolation, saying um, molecules can't cross molecular gaps. Cyclical change, where we see what will look like evolution moving in a certain direction actually was just a cycle where it goes back, where things are adapting to their environment. They're not changing into other creatures. Irreducibly, irreducible complexity, which means life has to have all its component parts 
come into existence at once the first time that thing's alive or it's not going to survive at all. I talked about your circulatory system being that way. Despite genetic limits that even with intelligent people breeding animals, they can't create new animals. They create just variations of a certain kind of animal. And then, of course, what we just covered with the fossil record. All right. So if creation were true, what would that evidence need to look like? If our Genesis 1 is true, what would the universe have to look like for that to be true? Well, you'd have a universe that exploded into being out of nothing. You'd have a universe with over 100 fine-tuned, life-enabling constants with insurmountable odds of being just so. This is what we have. You would have life that has never been observed to arrive spontaneously, consists of millions of volumes of empirically detected specified complexity. So that we covered with the video clip that I showed you from the movie Contact, where they're like, hey, if you get a set of prime numbers, that's intelligence. Well, we've got way more than a set of prime numbers going on in, in our brains and our bodies and all of that. So therefore, based on their conclusions, we have to come from intelligence. Uh, you would have life that changes cyclically and only within a specified range. That was the Galapagos finches that we talked about. You would have <coughs> um, sy uh, systems that can't be built or modified gradually because they're irreducibly complex. You would see that there's uh, life is molecularly isolated between types, restricted to the type they're in. And you would see life that leaves a fossil record behind of fully formed creatures that appear suddenly, they do not change, and then they disappear suddenly. Okay, and that's exactly, of course, what we find. All right. So all the evidence points to creation. None of the evidence points to macroevolution. So people will say this. Well, why don't we just teach theistic macroevolution? Why don't we just teach that God started the whole process? He started the whole process and then evolution happened. Well, if the fossil record happened to show gradual change over millions of years, and if we happened to see organisms that were not irreducibly complex, then that would be a viable consideration. But since all the evidence points to sudden creation, then why would we teach any theory that has no evidence to it? Okay. Last week I showed you a quote where the guy said, we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. That's why they hold to their conclusions. They cannot allow a divine foot in the door. All right. So that's the conclusion of the fossil record. Now, um, a couple other points I want to make about the fossil record. Um, you, what we observe that is unexplainable couple things that are unexplainable in the fossil record. One is that we find sea creatures, fossilized sea, sea creatures, in elevated mountaintop areas. So now we know that those mountains had to be underwater and somehow created a violent death for these creatures. So that needs massive amounts of explanation. Okay. We also have... Um, you see the rock layers like the Grand Canyon. Where are the darker layers of the Grand Canyon? They're on the bottom, right? And then the layers get lighter and lighter and lighter. Just as would be true if they were submerged in water. That water was evaporating. Then the lower layers would be submerged in water. The longest would obviously be the darkest, just like the sand at the beach is. And where the evolutionist says that those rock layers uh, happened over millions of years, like each layer 
is millions of years older than the layer on top of it, which is millions of years older than the layer on top of it. Well, what we should be able to see, if that were true, is erosion in between these layers because they were exposed to the wind and the sun and the weather for millions of years. We should see erosion in those rocks in between layers, and we don't see erosion. What we see is something that looks like it was put in place immediately, one layer on top of another immediately. We also see lots of twisted rock formations. Okay, so it takes a lot to twist rock formations. We need powerful forces to do that. And the final thing is we have what we call polystrate fossils. So what's the prefix poly mean? Right, many. Excellent. All right, so it means many. Um, and strat, uh, polystrate, the strate is for stratum. So polystrate fossils are fossils that cover multiple layers of these geological columns. So we have fossils that are buried and they're crossing over geological columns, which couldn't happen if one column was there for millions of years and then the other one came millions of years later. But these are layers that were laid out instantaneously and these fossils buried in them and happen to be buried where the coloration changes happen. We have trees that cover multiple, more than two of those stratums. So polystrate fossils are good evidence for instantaneous laying out of the geological columns. All right, so let's get into the uh, morality argument. Now, this is the one that gets argued back and forth probably the most. The claim is not that you can't be moral if you don't believe in God. The claim is that you have no grounds or basis for your morality. You can be moral, you just don't have objective standards to base your morality upon. Does everybody understand the argument before we move on? Of course, an atheist can be moral. They can be more moral than a lot of Christians, correct? But when you ask them why, um, their answer does, is going to lack an absolute standard of righteousness that they're following. It's going to have to be objective. So let's take a look at this. So the argument for morality. All right, so as we went through the cosmological, the teleological, and all of those arguments, this one's set up the same way as far as there's two premises that if they're proven, the conclusion naturally follows. So premise one, every law has a lawgiver. Two, there exists a moral law. Conclusion, therefore, there's a moral law giver. So let's unpack all of this now. All right. So some things are just self-evident. We see this with our belief in the uh, Declaration of Independence where it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now with that, we go to uh, this professor here from the University of Texas. He says this about the moral law. He says, in observing that all peoples everywhere exhibit basic principles of right and wrong, describes the moral law as that which, that which we can't not know. He says, you can't not know about the moral law because all people groups everywhere display behavior that recognizes a moral law. Doesn't matter what civilization you're looking at, they all follow principles of some understanding of morality. But how do we know that the, there's a moral law that exists? So here's how we're going to unpack this. How do we know the moral law exists? Well, eight reasons we're going to pursue here 
Uh, number one is going to be that the moral law is undeniable. Okay, and we're going to go through these one by one. Two, we're going to know it by our reactions to the moral law. Three, that it's the basis of human rights. Four, that it's the unchanging standard of justice. Five, that it defines a real difference between moral positions. How can you say something's more moral than something else if there's no standard to base it upon? Six, knowing what's absolutely wrong means that there's an absolute right. So anybody says that's wrong, you have to say, says who? And that becomes an interesting conversation. Seven, the moral law is the grounds for political and social dissent. And eight, if there were no moral law, then nobody would ever make excuses for violating it. Yet we hear people making excuses all the time. All right, so let's unpack the first one. The moral law is undeniable. Any attempt for relativists to deny the moral law end up proving it. Their claim that there is no moral absolutes always, but, but they'll always say it's wrong when you mistreat them, right? So <clears throat> people saying, hey, listen, you know, you do you. You know, that might be good for you. It's not good for me, all right? But people are never okay if you steal from them, even if the thief doesn't believe in moral absolutes. The person who denies all values, nonetheless, will value their right to deny all values, correct? It's literally impossible to deny all values because you have to value your own opinion on that, right? So their value of their opinion of that proves the existence of values. So now we've got to identify where do these values actually come from. Now we know it by our reactions. So people will say Christians can behave just as badly as atheists. Absolutely true. But we don't know there's a moral law based on our actions because people can be immoral. But we do know it by our reactions. Okay? So when I teach this in class, I'll usually look for a kid who has his phone out. And that's easier to do than you might imagine. Okay? And I'll just take his phone and stick it in my pocket. And they'll just, he'll just go, you know, when am I getting that back? And he'll say, never. Well, what do you mean? You got to give it back by the end of class or the end of day. Says who? Says administration. Well, who are they? They're your boss. Well, so what? Uh, who, you know, they came out of a womb naked and crying just like I did. So why do they get to make the rules I have to live by? How about we decide now I make the rules that they'll live by? Right? Who says that it's got, things got to be the way they are now? I wasn't at a meeting where we made these rules. Okay, I never agreed to it. You don't find my signature anywhere that says that I agree not to take your phone today. So therefore, who am I actually bowing down to by obeying this don't steal rule? Okay, there's no basis for that moral absolute. And so people will start saying things like, well, we just all agree that it's the best way of living. Says who? The thief will tell you he decided differently, correct? All right, now, so there was an Indiana professor who failed his relativistic student for his paper on moral relativism. He, moral relativism. He gave a whole paper on saying, hey, you like chocolate, I like vanilla. It's our own, it's our own uh, opinions, it's our own preferences, okay? And he built a whole paper on it. The professor failed him. And on, on the uh, comment section, he said, I failed you because you, I don't like the blue folder you turned this in on. The kid freaked out. You can't do that. And the professor ended up quoting the kid's own paper for his right to fail him because he doesn't like blue folders. That's what moral relativism looks like. 
the Bible verse that displays this the best, I think, is the very last verse in the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends about as poorly as any Bible book ends. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Okay, now, not one of those words showed that there would be immorality in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And when I say that, I guarantee you, everybody in this room thought Israel must have been a mess then. Because you know doing right in your own eyes ain't going to cut it, correct? There's got to be a standard to be followed. You cannot free people to do whatever's right in their own eyes. We will be in the chaos that Israel was in when they didn't have a king to lead them. So, next slide. So we know it by our reactions. There was universal moral outrage of, of Americans over the events of 9-11, which showed the existence of the moral law. Now, some people object to say, well, the Muslims say that that was morally proper for them to do that. But if the same type of violent killing were done to them, they would suddenly cry out with moral outrage. So everybody's agreeing that the wrong done to them is morally unacceptable. So we know it by how we respond and how we react to things. Next slide says the moral law is not always the standard by which we treat other people, but it's nearly always the standard by which we expect others to treat us. Right? Okay. The moral law does not describe how we actually behave, but rather it prescribes how we think we ought to behave. Okay, that's an important distinction to avoid the arguments where people think Christians think they're the only ones who can be moral. No, that's not what we think. We think we're the only ones that have an absolute standard that provides the reasons why we ought to uh, be moral. Now, We have the Declaration of Independence again for our, you know, saying that the moral law is the basis for human rights. We read that, um, that line from the Declaration of Independence because our founders based our entire freedom, our entire freedom from England was based on self-evident, unalienable rights. This means that they saw our right to be independent on unchangeable rights which are based on a creator. They actually identified a creator which is providing these rights to rebel against them, correct? Here's why we're not um, like these just pirate level people that are just rebelling against their king. No, we're saying there's a standard that's been set. And with that standard, we're given this right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and to rightly pursue that, we're breaking away from you. So they, ha they had to provide a standard for their behavior, correct? So they appealed to the creator. Whether you agree with that or not, they acknowledged their need for a standard. So with the Nazi uh, Nuremberg trials, so as you probably know, that the Nazi soldiers after World War II were put on trial for their tremendous crimes against humanity. And in those trials, the only way this international community could bring up Nazi war criminals on violations of basic human rights 
in Nuremberg was by the universal rec recognition of the moral law. If there were no such international morality that transcended the laws of secular Germany, then the Allies would have had no grounds to condemn the Nazis. We couldn't have said that the Nazis were absolutely wrong unless we knew what was absolutely right. We do know they were absolutely wrong, and that's only because of the moral law existing. So now with that, what was their defense? What defense would they have for the, these tremendous crimes against humanity? Following orders, right? That was their defense. We were following orders. But to be able to say, and they're t telling the truth, they were just following orders. But to be able to charge them as guilty, which they were charged as being guilty, you have to be able to say there's a transcendent moral law that exists that would, should have led you to actually disobey and not commit these horrendous things. And so they were declared guilty because they did not have the basic moral principles of rejecting their human authority uh, when they should have known better because there has to be a higher standard that they should have known to follow. Otherwise, you can't say they're wrong. And I'll never, ever forget talking to a gentleman who was an evolutionist and we were talking about this argument for morality, and, I, and he gave me the whole molecules to man. I said, well, if you believe in molecules to man and we're just molecules in motion right now, then what do you say about the behavior of Adolf Hitler? And he says, well, I, my molecules say they're wrong, but his molecules said he was right. I said, well, do you think he'd be worthy of prosecution if he lived for, for, for trial? And he says, no, who has the right to do that? Now listen, in his worldview, he's... He's logical. There's nobody that can stand and say, Adolf Hitler, my molecules are better than yours. My molecules don't like what yours are doing, so therefore mine are going to judge yours and punish yours. Okay? The, the very logical answer Adolf Hitler would have is, says who? What are you basing this on? Okay? Because he had his reasons for doing what he was doing. And if we say it's just molecules, then he's logical. But if there's a moral law that exists and supersedes us, exists outside of us, it can't be within us because then it's relative to us, correct? Yours is yours and mine is mine. It's got to be outside of us as a higher standard that we are expected to respond to. It has to be that way or none of this discussions of morality, we could never ever have it. So the fourth point to unpack is that the moral law is the unchanging standard of justice. How do we have court systems of lesser standards? C.S. Lewis, former atheist slash maybe agnostic, in dealing with the problem of evil, he wrote this. As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what a straight line is. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see? C.S. Lewis, like you and me, can only detect injustice because there exists an unchanging standard of justice written on our hearts. You can only detect injustice if there's a perfect standard of justice written on our hearts. You can't know what's evil unless you know what's good. You can't know what's good unless there's an unchanging standard of good outside of yourself and outside of myself. 
Without an objective standard, any objection to evil is nothing but opinion. It's nothing but opinion. Okay. All right. So, if there were no moral law, then we would not be able to detect evil or injustice of any kind. Without justice, injustice becomes meaningless. Likewise, unless there's an unchanging standard of good, there's no such thing as objective evil. But since we all know that evil exists, then so does the moral law. Our fifth point. Uh, the moral law establishes real differences in moral positions. So how do we all seem to agree that Mother Teresa is more moral than Adolf Hitler? There would have to exist a perfect morality from which we can compare the two. There's no standard to compare them. We don't know who's moral, more moral than who. Okay, so we seem to all universally agree Mother Teresa is a more moral human being than Adolf Hitler was. Therefore, we must be to acknowledge some universally understood standard. Okay, because when you say Mother Teresa was a better person than Adolf Hitler, you don't hear somebody saying based on what. Right? They all know that there's this universal standard that exists. That's an acknowledgement of it. So C.S. Lewis explains it this way, and I really, really love this. I don't want anybody to miss this, <clears throat> so I want, to make, I want to go slow enough to make sure we catch this. So C.S. Lewis explained it this way. He says, the moment that you say one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are, in fact, measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other one. But the standard that measures two things is something different from either of those things. You are, in fact, comparing them both with some real morality, admitting that there is such a thing as a real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that real right than others. Or put it this way, if your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. You could tell he was writing during the war, right? Okay. The only way to objectively know that the morality of Mother Teresa is better than that of Adolf Hitler is if there's an absolute morality in which to compare them. So statements like murder is evil or racism is wrong or you shouldn't abuse children have no objective meaning and are just a matter of personal preference without the moral law being written on everybody's heart. We all know the above statements are absurd. So moral relativism is false, and objective moral law does indeed exist. All right, sixth point. The moral law allows us to know right from wrong. So the relativist will argue that we can know what's wrong, like racism and murder, but that nobody can know what's truly right. They take this side of the issue knowing that if right can be known, then that points to an absolute standard, okay? If they say we can know what's absolutely right, then you say based on what, and they have to identify a standard for that. So their argument becomes we, we know what's wrong intuitively, but that doesn't mean that there's an absolute right. Well, this reasoning fault is faulty and is exposed with this question. How do you know what's wrong if you don't know what's right? How do you know five is not the answer to two plus two unless you already know that four is the right answer? You have to know what's right to be able to identify what's wrong. How did C.S. Lewis say it a little while ago? He says, how do we know a line is crooked unless we have some idea of a straight line? 
There's got to be something to compare it to. So relativists will claim that nobody has the truth. That that very claim is a claim of what? Knowing the truth. Right? I know it's very, very true that there you can't know truth. Okay? They're stuck with that type of argument, which of course makes no sense. Therefore, it is a self-defeating claim. All right, the seventh one we're going to unpack. The moral law is the grounds for political and social dissent. Okay, now, if you go to any protest whatsoever, okay, and they're protesting, they're saying people are wrong, right? That's what a protest is. You know, they're somewhere going, you're wrong, you're wrong, we're protesting, you're wrong. Now, they better be theists or they're hypocrites. Because to tell other people that they're absolutely wrong, they have to be going by a standard, don't they? And where are they going to get this standard from if they don't believe in God? Okay? And I bet you, majority of them are not theists. And it becomes entirely hypocritical for them to take a political position of protest without having a standard to base that on. All they can possibly shout out from the crowd is, I just don't think you should do that. And that's usually not their chant, right? It's a chant of you're wrong and you need to go, correct? So when relativists protest against war or anti-abortion laws or anti-sodomy laws, etc., they can no longer hold a relativist stance because they are now employing the very moral law that they typically deny. In an atheistic worldview, there is no basis objective basis for right and wrong. So there's no basis for them declaring that they are right and the church is wrong. Okay, They have no basis for these declarations whatsoever. So if uh, the eighth point we're going to unpack, if there were no moral law, then we wouldn't make excuses when we violate it. Making excuses, excuses is a tacit admission that the moral law exists. Even the relativist mantra of tolerance is an admission of the existence of the moral law. Why? Because why do they use the word tolerance? Do you have to tolerate good behavior? Well, they're saying nobody does anything wrong, everybody's good, just tolerate it. Anybody ask you to tolerate Mother Teresa's behavior? No. As soon as they engage the word tolerance, they're saying this is wrong, we just don't think you should oppose it. But it's a tacit admission of the moral law's existence. The moral law did not exist. What would they be asking everybody to be tolerant about? No one asked someone to be tolerant of well-behaved people. We're never asked to tolerate Mother Teresa. All right, Edward O. Wilson. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. Okay, the ideas that we hold on these things have consequences to the ideas. Okay. So I'm going to play out some of these ideas. Now, these are published statements. Okay, Edward O. Wilson. What, what, what do Darwinists say about the moral law? Well, nearly all of them avoid the topic, or they'll simply say, they'll try to make the debate about why do you think atheists can't be moral? We're not saying that. We're saying you have no objective standard reason why to be moral. So an exception to this is Darwinist Edward O. Wilson. He believed that people pass morality on through their genes to their offspring. He says, through thousands of generations, which inevitably gave rise to moral sentiments. 
So he just says morality arose through, through genetic evolution. That means that morality is genetically and materially formed, that it's actually in our genes. This makes morality based on inherited feelings or instincts, not on an objective standard of right and wrong. This same faulty reasoning of natural selection now used in morality is what we talked about that failed biologically. In other words, where we saw that you can't have slow gradual change biologically for those five scientific reasons I gave you, now they're applying that same biological reality in our genes with morality. But the problem is we already said, even if it is in our genes, genes can't evolve. Molecules can't evolve. You can't add information to DNA. DNA is the information that it is. Okay? So, nor can we identify moral genes. Where is your love gene? Where is your hate gene? Okay? So, I'm going to give you six more uh, proofs why moral natural selection, this Darwinian idea, is inadequate to explain morality. Okay, six reasons. First one, Darwinists assert that only materials exist. They're materialists. They can't believe in anything non-material because what would that spirit be? So the atheist is, the Darwinist is stuck with just materialistic explanations. But materials don't have morality. So how you'd ha you have to ask them, how much does hate weigh? Or where's the love atom? What's the chemical composition of the murder molecule? As you can see, physical particles are not responsible for our morality. Second reason why natural selection is inadequate to explain morality. So Wilson will say, morality is merely an instinct, but this cannot be so because we have competing instincts. Something often tells us to ignore the stronger instinct to do a more noble act. Okay, so C.S. Lewis will talk about if you're standing by a river with a strong current and across the way you see a young boy fall in and scream for help, you're going to have immediately two competing instincts kick in. What are they? Jump in and help or stay safe yourself, correct? Now, you have two competing instincts happening which would not happen in evolution. The weaker those instincts would be eliminated, correct? according to evolution, but we have these two competing instincts and we also know deep down which one is nobler. Because if you decide to stay safe, I highly doubt you're going to go home and go, honey, I was at the river. This 10-year-old boy fell in and the current was taking him away and he's screaming for help, but I want you to know this, I stayed safe. Do you think she's going to go, I am so proud of you, honey, you're my hero. You stayed safe. Because there's this ought to that kicks in, correct? There's this ought to saying, I ought to have jumped in. I ought to have risked. That life that fell in the river is so valuable. It's worth taking a risk to go in and to save that life. There's this ought to that plays into it. Where does that ought to come from? So C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, but you will find inside of you, here's how he unpacks it, you will find inside of you, in, in addition to these two competing impulses, a third thing that tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and you should suppress the impulse to run away. Now this thing which judges between these two instincts, the one that says that one is noble and one is not, cannot itself be either of those instincts. 
You might as well say the sheet of music which tells you at any given moment to play one note on the piano and not the other is itself one of the notes of the keyboard. The sheet of music is clearly separate from the keyboard, correct? But it tells you what you ought to do. You ought to hit this key at this point in time and then this key and then this key and then this key. That's what your ought to comes from the music sheet, but the music sheet cannot be one of the keys on the piano. The keys on the piano are the competing instincts. But there's an ought to that tells you how to make that music good. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. The moral law tells us the tune we ought to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. All right, third way we're going to unpack this. Edward O. Wilson said, social morals have evolved because those cooperative morals helped humans survive together. So these morals that somehow genetically knew we need to stay in this organism and the other morals need to leave is because they realized they had to survive together. But that's not what Charles Darwin said. He said it's survival of the fittest and the fittest ought to die, correct? There was no teaching about working together for survival. Now, if you had cooperative genes that could transcend people and my genes communicate with your genes to say we ought to work together here, that assumes a purposeful end to evolution. Make no mistake about it, evolution cannot be purpose-driven because there's no intelligence in the mechanisms here, correct? There's absolutely, so how does something know to form an eyeball at some point in time? when it wouldn't have any idea there's anything to see, would have no brain component to say this outside world is actually visible. And if I can somehow develop a retina and a cornea and a lens and an optic nerve that goes from my brain, which I don't even know how it got here, to the eye, then when light hits that object, it'll come to my eye and it'll get the optic nerve and it'll tell my brain what it is. We don't even have scientists that can pull that off today. Yet, mindless evolution was supposed to do that. To say that social morals evolve cooperatively is to say that evolution has an end in mind. But how would it have anything in mind when it doesn't have a mind? Evolution is by definition mindless. It can't operate from the position of purpose. Four. Wilson and other Darwinists assume that survival is a good thing, but there's no standard for what good is without the objective moral law. So they use an objective moral standard to say survival's good, but they can't believe in objective moral standards. So who says survival's good? Because according to Darwin, it's good that weaker things don't survive. So their motto, do whatever works or do whatever makes you feel good or whatever brings the greatest good becomes problematic. Because who's defining the good? So do whatever works. Well, towards whose end? Are you going towards Mother Teresa's goals or Adolf Hitler's goals? There's got to be some outside objective standard that drives all this. Fifth, Darwinists often confuse how we come to know the moral law with the existence of the moral law. Okay? So they're trying to explain how we've come to know the moral law so even if we come to know some of the moral law through environmental factors, it doesn't mean the moral law that we discovered 
doesn't exist outside of ourselves. So our brains are the way the moral law can be discovered, but it's not where the moral law was created, correct? Moral law is not created here. The moral law has to be discovered outside of me, correct? So even when we agree on what's moral, it's not because of some genetic commonality between us. It's, it's something outside of us that we're agreeing upon. Just like our brains don't have math inside of them, we discover the truths of math through, through observation, correct? And learning. We discover these truths that are outside of ourselves. The standards are not within, they're without. And they have to be discovered or revealed to us. It's not intrinsic. Sixth, Darwinists cannot explain why we should obey morality. If their theory of life and death and material morality is correct, why shouldn't we murder, steal, and rape? All of those can be advantageous for survival, right? They can all be advantageous for survival. Why should the rich and powerful cooperate with the less powerful, sometimes at their own expense? Why should there be charity? Why should the stronger help the weaker? History is replete with such characters, and they're all remembered negatively. We don't remember with honor the people that use their positions of power to oppress the people without power, even though that's a Darwinianist model for survival. We always consider those bad actors as bad actors throughout history. And as I said earlier, ideas have consequences. Okay, Adolf Hitler, in his book Mein Kampf, he wrote this. If nature does not wish that weaker individuals should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle with an inferior race. Because in such cases, all of evolution's efforts throughout hundreds of thousands of years to establish an evolutionary higher state of being must thus be rendered futile. As you know, he was a white supremacist. He believed that evolution would one day eliminate all the minorities. So he thought, why don't I speed up this process and just start eliminating them myself? And then he's saying, if you want to be a white person that mates with um, somebody from another race, you're just interfering with the process. Okay, so I don't know how any minority could ever have been a Darwinist. I just don't understand that. I don't understand how anybody, period, could be. But particularly when the struggle uh, for survival of the superior races is actually in a subtitle of his book. There's severe consequences to our ideas of, of a standard or not. Next slide says, such a preservation goes hand in hand with an inexorable law that it's the strongest and the best who must triumph and they have the right to endure. It's what, it's what Hitler taught. It's what Darwin taught. The strongest and the best have the right to endure. He who would live must fight, Adolf Hitler said. He who would live must fight. He who does not wish to fight in this world where permanent struggles, the law of life, has not the right to exist. It's what's in his book. Yet Christians are taught to practice peace whenever possible. Darwinism teaches that disqualifies them from your right to exist. The famous Scopes trial from 1925 exposed the racist overtones of Darwinism. The high school biology textbook that was under consideration during that trial spoke of five races of man with the conclusion that Caucasians are the highest type of all. 
The Bible says otherwise. Genesis 1.27, Acts 17.26 and 29, Galatians 3.28. It also contradicts the very declaration that we base our entire independence from England on, right? That all men are created equal. Peter Singer, if you thought you were uncomfortable with some of this stuff, here, you listen to this. Princeton professor. Yeah, I got into an Ivy League school. I can't wait to go hear from my professors. Well, Peter Singer said this, the life of a newborn child is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimp because you don't know if that child's useful yet or not. So it has no value. He's talking about an already born child, not, a, not a, even a child in the womb. James Rachels said this, what are we to say about them? According to the... The natural conclusion, according to the doctrine that we're considering, which is Darwinism, would be that their status is that of mere animals. He's talking about mentally handicapped children. Their status would be that of mere animals. And perhaps we should go on to conclude that they may be used as non-human animals, or perhaps as laboratory subjects or as food. The moral implications of Darwinism believes that humans have no more inherent value than animals. And that's what they think of the mentally handicapped. I've observed students that are mentally handicapped. And this is my conclusion. They are called, we are all called to love God with all that we got and to love each other, correct? I have seen the mentally handicapped children in our school do that way better than any of the non-mentally handicapped kids, which makes me ask the question, who's really mentally handicapped? If they're obeying God so well and so easily, then it seems to me that our freedom of thought is handicapping us greatly. Randy Thornhill and Craig Palmer claim the following about rape. Rape is a natural biological phenomenon that's a product of human evolutionary heritage, just like the leopard spots and the giraffe's elongated neck. Okay? If survival of the fittest and your fitness is determined on your ability to reproduce yourself and a man is stronger than the woman, then rape becomes a biological phenomenon that's just a part of evolution. You see how there's no objective standard being used there? That's if you believe morality is genetically determined. These are the natural conclusions. All right, concluding thoughts on morality. There is an absolute standard of right and wrong written on everybody's heart. Our actions might contradict it, but our reactions reveal it. The second thing we learned tonight is this. Relativism is false. Humans do not determine right and wrong. We discover right and wrong. Third thing. The moral law must come from outside of ourselves since it's a prescription written on our hearts and prescriptions need prescribers. Fourth, the moral law is God's standard of rightness and allows us to adjudicate between different moral positions that people have. Fifth, the moral law transcends culture. Okay, we see this moral law existing in the hearts of people everywhere. Six, atheists have no real basis 
for objective right and wrong. They may and do understand right and wrong. They just have no way to justify why something's right or wrong. So remember, what we started in week one is we're looking for unity out of diversity. Okay? We're looking for why is there such unity in this universe uh, and such diversity okay, come out of the, the chaotic Big Bang. We have all this unity. How did that happen? Well, that's been the search of man from the beginning. Man's always recognized tremendous unity, yet it also recognized why. There's got to be a unifier if there's unity. Unity doesn't happen through randomness, so it's always troubled mankind. And we created institutions designed to pursue this whatever brings unity out of diversity. What do we call those places? Universities. Universities were literally designed to discover what this, who this unifier is. Okay? And that's why it's so beautiful when John says in the beginning was the Lagos. He's identifying the unifier that everybody's looking for. That Lagos was with God and that Lagos was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. Explains everything we've talked about is explained through that statement. But then the great crisis of human history happens when it says, and that Lagos became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So now God is not this philosophical idea to be debated about. He's now a historical person that can be observed and examined, correct? It's not the God out there somewhere anymore. He became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He made himself known. Now everybody's got to choose. There's no neutral ground anymore. It's black and white. All excuses have been eliminated on this. So what is it that's making our vastly divergent universe with all of its complexity in life so unified? Well, what we've shown so far is that truth exists and it can be known. John 14 say, I am the truth. Truth can be known. All denials of truth presuppose truth so that truth exists and can be known. Anybody says there is no truth, say, is that true? Some truths we know absolutely, others with a high degree of certainty beyond a reasonable doubt. And we can know that God exists beyond a reasonable doubt. And that, that standard is sufficient to put people in the electric chair, isn't it? We can, beyond a reasonable doubt is a, is a great standard. It means no reasonable person will doubt this. You have to be unreasonable to doubt it. We can know this through the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, through the argument from morality. All right, so right is right, even if no one's doing it. It's a great slide, but my slide person just stepped away. Oh, but I have the power. Look at that. Boom. Had it the whole time. All right. <laughs> All right. Very good. All right. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you that you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, and you did manifest yourself to mankind. Lord, you reduced yourself, condescended yourself to human form, taken the very form of a man, Lord, you became obedient even to death, the death of a cross. Therefore, your Father has highly exalted you and given you the name above every name, 
that at your name, Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of your Father. And so, Lord, we just pray that our lives will be used by you in a way to reveal the truth of you and all the truths, Lord, that fall into place once we acknowledge the supreme truth. So God, we're grateful for our salvation, grateful for what you've done to us, and we pray that our lives will be fully spent in your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.